Okay, I'm here with my friend Jason Silvestri. He's a illustrator from Regina here, and he, so I'm going to have a little chat with him. Um, I just want to get right into it. I've already explained my envy of your career, and I think all nerds love this. Um, what was the point in time, or what was the comic that you kind of picked up when you were young and just realized, I love this business, I want to either A, read it all the time, or just get into it? Yeah, I had a, a interesting uh, introduction to comic books. I mean, when I was a kid, uh, I grew up in a single parent household, so we didn't have a ton of money, and I uh, I would spend a lot of time babysitting or cutting grass and doing stuff to make money for myself. I, even as a kid, I knew I wanted to have my own spending cash in pocket all the time. So, uh, but I, I I mean, I was growing up in the greatest. I think the greatest time for comic books when I started was uh, you know nineteen eighty three. You know, they had things like Secret Wars had, I think, just come out. And I remember uh, walking into a 7-Eleven uh, and I found a copy of Secret Wars and it had Spider-Man on the cover in a black, the black suit. And I had no idea who he was because I hadn't read anything. Uh, I had a couple of uncles that were super into DC Comics when I was a kid. And they handed me lots and lots. I had boxes and boxes of Batman and Green Arrow and all this stuff. But when you're, you know, 11 or 12, that stuff is pretty, uh, pretty heavy. Because I mean, even back then, the old DC stuff was written not really for kids, and it was always very serious. It seemed like DC was very, very serious. And then I picked up the the Spider-Man comic, uh, with the Secret Wars book, and in there, he's flipping around and he's he's fighting guys like the X-Men and and Thor, and he's joking around and he seems like he's just kind of having a good time and enjoying this new suit and all this stuff and I was like I need to know more about this character so that was it I was I was immediately hooked on on comics and I I picked up um, Amazing Spider-Man right after that uh, Web of Spider-Man just started um, right about that time so I grabbed the very first issue of Web of Spider-Man because I was like that's it I was all in on Spidey so I bought every single Spider-Man title that was running at the time so Peter Parker and, and Amazing and Web of and, you know, whatever else I can get my hands on. And then I, I also fell in love with the X-Men right away. Uh, I just immediately fell in love with Colossus. Everybody always says Wolverine, but for me it was Colossus. There was just something about that dude. He was uh, such an interesting character. He was quiet. He was reserved. He could turn his whole body into, like, the steel armor. But then he was also a very sensitive guy. So he just seemed like he was very three-dimensional, whereas uh, Wolverine had one goal one dimension get out there take out the claws rip somebody to pieces fight chomp on cigars insult you know cyclops and move on through his day um whereas peter had like a story and i felt like um one of the things i really enjoyed about the x-men was the way chris claremont could really get you to care about all the different characters kind of in the x-men so uh and i also fell in love with thor at the same time and that was when Walter Simonson was doing his run on thor and i, I again i loved thor because he wasn't like the regular standard superhero he was the norse god of thunder and walt simonson had taken away the superhero stuff from him he was he was telling you the story of thor the god of thunder so you had loki and thor and all of these asgardian guys and they weren't running around earth they were on asgard and he was doing all these really cool stories and he did that crossover with the fantastic four he did that mutant massacre thing he he entwined all the Marvel stuff into it, but he kind of kept it at bay and just told you the story of Thor all the way through it. And then he did the issue where Thor got turned into a frog, and I was like, I mean, I was like, I was like 11 or 12 at the time, so I just thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. 
you know, you got this frog in the cover, he's got Molnir in his hands, and he's whipping butt and killing rats and doing all that stuff. Uh, and so I immediately was like, I, I love this. This is an amazing, you know, what an amazing storytelling medium. Um, I didn't think I could draw like that at the time, so I gravitated towards the newspaper funnies. Uh, I fell in love with uh, Jim Davies, Charles Schultz, uh, Horrible Hager. Um, <laughs> I just I loved getting my hand like once I started getting into comics and cartoons I just that was it I dove right in it was like a drug you know I had a lot of friends that that were getting into um, you know drugs and alcohol at that time because you know you're getting into that I'm getting into high school stage and I managed to avoid all of that because I was so focused on playing guitar and drawing comic books and that was all I wanted to do uh, and then Charles Schultz came on television one night and said you too could be a cartoonist and I signed up for the art instruction schools of America's you know through the mail uh, art lessons and was that the same one that was in comic books like that little yeah panel you had in to the draw back? the bear and, and yeah. do all that stuff <laughs> and so I took lessons through them and uh, I was just excited by the very idea that you could do this as a living uh, I, I didn't think it was possible and uh so for the most part, I think I just, I kind of just kept to myself. I just started drawing and I, I decided probably about the age of 14, I didn't want to draw anybody else's characters. Um, I don't know why. I just, I had, like if I ever, I think if I ever got the opportunity to draw Spider-Man, I would gladly draw Spider-Man. But to me, I just had stories I wanted to tell and I didn't want to tell an X-Men story or a Fantastic Four story. I wanted to tell my stories. And so I started creating my own little pool of characters and uh, writing and drawing and, and doing stories on those guys. And um, that hasn't changed as I've gone on. It's just been, uh, it's kind of neat to make your own little niche of, of you know, your ta- you're part of the tapestry of, of, you know, comics and things like that. So That's super cool. Um, did it take you a long time to, like, get good at drawing? Like, I'm still I'm not good assuming at drawing. the most people are like cyanide and happiness style stick people but like oh, yeah. how many like hours and hours does it take to like get the human form down and stuff like that weeks and months and years uh i dove into i started off i think like every kid does i started tracing um steve ditko they did those marvel masterworks reprints where they were reprinting the old spider-man comics from way before we were all born I mean, they were all in the 60s, and, you know, here I'm, I'm a kid. I was born in 73, so Spider-Man was already, you know, 13 years old by the time I came on the scene. And so I was tracing Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby stuff out of these Marvel Masterworks reprints, and I loved their style because it was so cartoony, you know, whereas some of the more modern guys, like I love the art of guys like Mike Zack, Frank Miller, John Romita Jr., John Romita Sr., and they're beautiful artists. I mean, the stuff that they do is amazing. But for me, I have this special spot in my heart for cartooning. I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's just that's something I've always enjoyed. Um, so I look at, at the work of guys like Ditko and Kirby, and I, and I always love listening to people when they try to break down Jack Kirby's work, and they go, oh, it's so bad, it's so terrible. And they talk about how he has like no sense of anatomy, and it's like, but he's not trying to draw anatomy. He's just trying to draw uh, a feeling. He's trying to give you that action. He's trying to make that thing on the page come off the page and make you get excited about this two-dimensional image you're seeing and for some reason it works and you know and you go oh wow that's cool um and so i started doing that um 
once I I sort of had figured out the basic construction like composition and and how to actually construct um, a panel and things like that um, I, I picked up every book I could get my hands on about creating comic books I actually went to an art teacher first in my school and I said I want to draw cartoons and uh, so kids um, some artists will tell you that cartooning is lowbrow but you can ignore those guys because it's it's really a fun it's a fun hobby to get into and it's a fun fun art form to pursue um, my first art teacher kind of chuckled that I wanted to draw cartoons and he said well nobody wants to draw cartoons and I was like well what there are people drawing cartoons right now they're making money doing it and uh, so I ended up going to the library and I took out a book by Will Eisner which I ended up buying because I kept taking out so much um, that the librarian was like you know other people want to read this book too and I was like well they can't have it it's mine so <laughs> I bought uh, uh, Will Eisner's comics and sequential art and my mind was just broken I mean the what I thought I understood about cartooning I realized I didn't understand anything um, because I, I wasn't putting into thought things like story pacing or uh, using the panels on the page to direct the reader's eye or to um, you know by adding more panels and taking panels away that I would be changing the actual pace of the story so if I wanted to build up to a scene of frantic action in the comic book I would slowly take away a panel or two a page and then before you know it you're reading four panel pages and three panel pages and then two panel pages and then oh there's a big splash page and then we get back into the you know the, the talking and the, the story and all that stuff and um, it's actually kind of funny because my, my writer Carson Demons um, he he was uh, a newspaper cartoon writer so he's only known three panel gags and one panel gags and so teaching him how to write a comic book, I had to go back to the fundamentals of story pacing and things like that and sort of explain to him why you can't just do nine panel, nine panel, nine panel, splash, nine panel, nine panel, nine panel, splash. That You have to have variety. You have to move things around. You have to give the reader something to see with this not just the same nine panel grid, page after page after page uh, and things like that. And he does a wonderful job of that. I think he's got a great idea. He's got a great sense of comedic pacing so working with his script I can take it and turn those pages into something that works as a story so so is it broken down like a movie script where you have to say like page one panel one and kind of break it down that way or does uh, the artist have some free way and kind of how it's laid out yeah every writer I've worked with is different uh, I've written and like I've written stories on my own um, so I don't write any of that stuff down for myself I I'll sometimes draw a real quick thumbnail sketch and jot down what I want to have happening on the page. Um, when I work with Carson, uh, Carson gives me usually um, punchline. Like if we're doing a, a bunch of single panel gags, I get just an e, like a line of text. Here's the joke, and I have to work with that, which is totally fine. We've we've been doing it for five years. We've got a system down pat. It works really well for us. Uh, when he we do writing for Cartoons Magazine, um, he sends in a full script to the to the editor of the the magazine. So it'll say page one, panel one. Here's the dialogue. Page two, panel two. Here's the dialogue. And and then I get it kind of like that. Um, and then I change things as I need to, which Carson's totally fine with. I mean, we we've we've got that um, we've built that real creative relationship where. He knows 
kind of what I'm going to do and I know kind of what he's going to do and we don't butt heads over it. you know we just sort of we just try to put out as good a cartoon as we can and we're just thrilled to see it in print and we're really happy to see people laughing when they read it so I mean that's that's the end goal is to make people laugh as they're reading stuff so um, for us there's no no ego involved like we're both really laid back people so it's pretty easy to work with them <laughs> so, yeah is it a pretty ego driven industry though like are there um, some people that have to have it like my way or the highway when it comes to laying out a story you can run into that a little bit um i mean i've worked with some difficult writers um you know but i think that happens everywhere like you'll get some people i mean you have to keep in mind to some writers uh, if they have written that story and rewritten it a bunch of times, that's their baby, right? And sometimes people, like I don't have an, an emotional attachment to anything I've done. I, I do the artwork to get the artwork done. Like I have a different mindset, I think, than a lot of people would. Whereas some people do a drawing or they do a writing and they kind of almost fall in love with that thing that they've created. And it's like it's their baby and they want to protect it and they want it to be a certain way and if it's not exactly that way then they get very defensive about it and it gets that's where you get ego and combat in things is, is when somebody's really kind of clinging to something like this is my baby it has to be exactly this way um and, and i don't do that because i don't i don't want to <laughs> like i look at what i'm doing as like this is commercial art and so I'm doing something that as soon as I hand it off, like I'm handing stuff off to somebody else, I have zero control of how it's going to go from the moment I've completed my work on it and handed it in. Uh, like when I do a cartoon strip, I know they're going to resize things. They might tweak the gray tones. They might, you know, add a border. Like they're going to do whatever they have to do to put it in their magazine. And I don't care. I mean, that's, that's their part of it. Um, they just send me a check right like it's a job to me like to me like i love doing the comic books i love doing the stories but i don't put my ego onto it you know if i draw a cartoon and i make one guy laugh and i draw a cartoon and three people hate it i don't go oh boy i better go look for a bridge to jump off because these three guys didn't like my cartoon like i think i think that what helped me get to that point was doing the small press idol competition like five years ago uh no seven years ago now Jeez, it's been a long time and that was my first exposure to putting artwork on the internet because i mean that was such a scary thought like i had been doing a web comic book before that and i didn't have a comments section on my website when i had that up so i didn't see what anybody thought i could look and see like their depth of visit. I could see how many pages they clicked on, where they spent most of their time, um, what pages they went back to, like what it was they were checking out. But they didn't get to leave comments to say, hey, I really like the art in panel three on page five. Like there was just nowhere for them to interact with you. And then suddenly I'm in this this contest with these guys in the States and and it's like small press. It's like a small, you know, American Idol kind of thing where people are, are going to rip you a new one just because that's the thing that they're doing they're trying to make you you know improve or to survive to, to the next step sort of thing so um i learned very quickly doing that that you can't take what anybody says personally on there because you're just opening yourself up to not wanting to pursue anything uh, i mean they just kill that that joy of creating what you're creating um, I just took the the um, 
when I when I was in that contest, I just took pleasure in in beating teams of people on my own. Oh, and nice. I, I didn't care what people thought of the product. I mean, they thought enough to vote me through a bunch of rounds to give me a print deal. That's all that mattered. But what mattered to me was that the comments from the judge when they would say, you know, there were 67 teams involved in this contest. And by teams, I mean they had writer, artist, penciler, inker, letterist, colorist. There, there were two teams that were just single people. There was myself and another guy. And the other guy um, didn't make it through the second round. And I was always the first guy to have his stuff handed in. Like, either right on time or a day earlier than the contest wanted. And then I would see the comments from the judge like, holy crap, you guys. Like, you've got a team of people. Each of you has one specific job in this thing. This one dude is kicking your ass because he's got all his stuff in on time. Like, every time. So you're outpacing, like... The penciler, the inker, the colorist. Holy smoke. Yeah, I think it was just more of a, I was sticking to his schedule. Whereas I think, and that's the danger when people are starting to, because everybody looks at what we do and they go, oh, I could do that. And you could, sure. There's nothing stopping anybody from sitting down and creating a web comic or a comic book or graphic novel or whatever they want to do until they realize how many hours they have to put into it. And where I differ from a lot of people that, that kind of dabble in it is I have a set schedule every day so every single day I know I have to sit at my drawing table from hour X to hour Y and I have to put out a certain amount of work because I have deadlines and they're not like self-imposed deadlines I've got you know a publisher wants this project done by this date so I have to break down how many pages of artwork do I need to get the project done by that date which equals how much time per page divided by the amount of pages like it's all math <laughs> yeah you know and i go okay so i have to spend four hours a night every night you know until this date to get this in on time and sometimes i will have days where i just i knock off two or three extra pages or i slug it out with one page for the entire night and then i know the next night i gotta get a couple extra in like you're always going to be a little over a little under but if you're keeping pace and keeping a schedule it gets a lot easier over time to just continue to produce a lot of work because it's all you're doing. And the more you do stuff, the faster you get at it. So it's it's um, like when Carson and I, he just he just submitted a script to Cartoons Magazine today. Uh, it's due December 14th. Um, I already know in my head how it's going to look. So, you know, tonight I'll go home and I'll start breaking down the script into the individual panels and, you know, by the 14th it'll be in so you think with that contest too like you said with comics yeah. I'm a, it's a monthly gig so you think these people would be more on top of their time efficiency too yeah I think the problem is is that it, everything sounds great on paper right um, everybody would love to do something and, and to be remembered for it and I think some cartoonists can produce work on a monthly basis some cannot and there's nothing wrong with that um you just sort of have to know what your output level is um like uh gary uh who's putting out the jack Grimm stuff he doesn't produce a monthly book but he produces a really wonderful book and jack Grimm's a fantastic read i really enjoy it I i'm loving every issue he's putting out i wish he could get a monthly book up but he's a dad with kids and life happens man and that's you know what that's totally awesome 
he's still producing on a very regular basis and he does a marvelous job of it and he puts out a high quality comic book every single time he does uh elaine wills another artist who i greatly admire and she puts out a fantastic product but she again doesn't do a monthly comic book she did do um looking straight ahead was a um a web comic for a while but she's more of a graphic novelist she does you know a complete story and then she puts it out but she produces on a very regular basis really high quality work and uh you know and then you have people that say they want to do stuff and then they sort of spin their wheels and they kind of start and stop and restart and stop and start and stop and and uh you know it, that i think that that's the tough part is is getting past that page one panel one of issue one <laughs> once you do that um just keep going forward it, that's the hard part it's um for me i know i got derailed on producing comic books because cartooning just took over we carson and i had the terrible fortune of becoming uh, sort of a hit team with our you might be from saskatchewan if books and that led to you know like four other books so nothing else got produced <laughs> everything else has been put to the side uh, i have a bunch of comic books on my hard drive that are finished and just need to be lettered and turned into books but um yeah we're still working on other books right now so i want to wait until i have a hole in that schedule where i can go okay now i can focus on this because if i don't then i'm just going to throw books out there and how do you promote something when you're busy doing something else so um so i have a bunch of work just waiting for me to have time to properly start releasing it so we'll see what happens um maybe next this, year yeah did the success of the you might be from saskatchewan kind of take you by surprise yeah yeah big time um because we I, people would be shocked if they knew how much work we did in such a short span of time like Carson had, I think, about a dozen cartoons written for it when he pitched it, and and I mean this is how this is how Carson pitched. You might be from Saskatchewan. If he and I worked in the same office, and we had like we were next door to each other in offices, and he had just found out that I was a cartoonist, and I just found out he was a writer, and so I'm literally walking past his office one day at lunchtime, and he he calls me into his office. On the phone is the publisher, for you might be from Saskatchewan if, and I walked into the conversation and, and they're saying, so can you get this done by May, and I, and Carson's like, Jason, can we get this done by May? And I'm like, sure. I'm not gonna say no. I don't even know what I'm agreeing to yet, but I said sure. And so the call ends. You know, he's like, okay, we'll send out the contract, no problem. And I'm like, what did I just agree to? And what <laughs> month was this in? This was like, we had about seven months to get 148 cartoons into a book and I had to design the book and format it and get it into the publisher's hands in time for them to have it out for um, that summer spring summer or yeah the spring summer release uh, schedule and uh, so they had a cover done up for it probably two months after we agreed to do it um, and they started sort of letting bookstores know that we were coming out and you know the buzz started before we even had a book you know and so um yeah it was pretty interesting um i think carson actually had me do a couple of sample cartoons like maybe two or three that we sent him to you know kind of proof of concept that this could be a thing 
Um, but yeah, the book moved really fast. I mean, we had no time to think about it. And that was one of those things. I think that's one of the things I always give Carson credit for that. And I always tell him, you know, you broke me because before we did those books, I wasn't super fast at drawing cartooning. I wasn't. I just, I had my own pace. It was fairly steady, but it wasn't like fast. I, I had to really lean on the skill set that I had, had kind of created when I was doing uh, caricatures and, and sort of quick sketches of people. And I had to turn that into cartooning. I had to just throw that into there and, and sort of you you have to draw the cartoon, ink the cartoon, and then move on. You can't even look at it again. Um, and so I just had this like little plastic bin beside my drawing table and I would tape up like seven or eight pages and I would tape up the list of cartoons that Carson had just emailed me that day. It'd be like 20, you know, jokes basically. And I'd be like, okay, I got to come up with an image for this. <laughs> and so I would quickly draw the image up and I would go along and I'd have eight images real quick in pencil and then I would ink them all. And as the ink was drying on this one, I would throw it into the bin and I would tape up another fresh sheet and I would just keep going. And my table looked like a, a you know, a tornado hit it for like months and before you know it, I've got this bin full of just like art just sitting in this bin that I haven't even looked at. I haven't gone through and gone, oh, that sucks or, oh, I don't like this one. And I, you know, and it's like, you don't have time to even think about it. All I had time to do was scan it, put it into Photoshop, add all of the text, turn it into a PDF and send it out the door. I didn't have time to do anything else with it. So was he like sending you so many like lines Every per day, day, a week? Or? <laughs> Every day he was emailing me. Here's another 10, here's another 15. Here's was there like 20. a screening process at all? Were you able no. to be like, this one might not <laughs> no. be so funny? Or did nope. you just draw them? I just drew them. We had no screening process. It was just, we have 148 to come up with. Let's just, we just went. And before we knew it, the book was done. And then it was out. And then they were talking about doing another book. Um, and, and so we, we started on the second book. The, probably the week or so after we found out the first one was on the bestsellers list and that was just such a weird thing we went to do a book signing and the lady at the Coles bookstore brought us out these books and we noticed that we had a little blue banner on the top and we were like well what the heck is what's going on and I turned it over and I'm like it says we're bestsellers <laughs> I was like what <laughs> like how did how did this get on the bestsellers list it was so crazy and then I think for me, it felt like it was like a really, uh, it was a funny validation because Carson had pitched that idea um, to every single book publisher in Saskatchewan and they all declined, which I mean, that's their prerogative, right? Like they're running a business and, and they're taking a risk on an unknown artist, unknown writer. And it, there's also that, that sort of weird um, thought out there well, it's not really a weird thought it's just there, there's a pre prevalent thought that you can't make money with a book of cartoons in this day and age and and we actually had you know a couple of publishers say that to us like you know oh no one's gonna buy a book of cartoons and then here we are standing in a Costco you know like fighting back a crowd of people and selling books like crazy um, I think the thing with that book is it just resonated with people it was just it's really funny um, it was perfect size for mailing, so people were sending it off as Christmas gifts all over the bloody place. Um, it just hit a nerve. People just really got a kick out of it. So um, it was nice to be able to run into those same publishers at like book fairs and stuff and be like, 
So we're on the bestsellers <laughs> list, and your book isn't. You know, just saying. <laughs> and that's already spawned like a second one. Yeah. Plus, um, the one that kind of caught my eye, I can't remember how long ago it came out, was the Color Saskatchewan. That's my newest one. Yeah, that one just came out last uh, June. Uh, and that one's been selling really solid. It's uh, That was uh, an interesting... We're at a weird spot, I think, career-wise. Like Carson and I, we're still pitching stuff to like a ton of different publishers, and we still work with a lot of different people. Um, but we've been working with McIntyre Purcell Publishing for the last, I guess, five years now. And so for me to get the coloring book going... Uh, I sent a two-line email off to the publisher. I said, hey, I've got this idea. What if we did a coloring book? Because Carson and I had just sent in. We sent. We had just completed a book which hasn't come out yet. It's uh, the Saskatchewan Book of Riddles. So that book's all finished and it's in. It's in their hands. And it was supposed to come out in June. And they wanted to jump on the coloring book thing right away. So I sort of bumped our book out of the schedule, not on purpose, and uh, did the coloring book really quick. Um, but I had to do, um, I think I ended up putting out about 110 images. And we chose like 73 to go into the book. There were some that we, some of them, like the publisher chose what went into the actual book. And there were a couple images that they didn't choose that I was sort of like, I didn't understand why they would cut those out. But I guess they were worried about um, you know, be, sensitivity to, to culture and things like that. Because I had put in there some um, Native American history pieces that I felt were kind of important because they're part of our history. And uh, I just thought they were really interesting pictures. And uh, uh, one of them was a picture of Chief Piapot. And I, I was really happy with how that picture turned out. And then it didn't make the book. So I was like flipping through it, looking for the picture and going, well, my picture didn't make it in the book. But then, you know, I, like I said, you can't attach an emotion to it I mean I just went okay I guess that they felt that this one we couldn't really include it because of whatever reason I mean they're the publisher I'm just the, the dude that sent them the art you know Yeah. so I mean I was a little disappointed that it wasn't in there because I felt like it was a really uh, respectful picture but I also felt like it was a really nice piece and I thought it would be something that people might enjoy coloring and, and I'd love to see I'd love to see people color it and then put it in a frame and throw it on their wall I think that'd be just awesome to see sort of what people have done with the art that you've done um, that's been honestly like the the best thing I've done so far with the coloring book was is getting images back from people as they color these things because they're they're using things like watercolors and acrylics and pencil crayons and whatever and they're coloring them up and they're sending them in to me and I'm looking at what the, you know the way that they went with the black and white art versus how I might have gone if I was coloring it myself right so uh, it's pretty interesting to see some of the pieces I actually turned into full digital paintings uh, and I'm going to do some prints of them for probably the Cathedral Village Arts Festival or something like that if I grab a booth there this year um, but I just I really liked the way the art pieces looked and they didn't make it into the books so I was like well I still would like to do something with this so I kind of hung on to them for myself and I mean that's I guess that's the nice thing about being an artist is that you can you can do that right I can they don't own the rights to it I do so that's the other thing that we've done really smart is is keeping the you know the rights to our art and to the, the writing um, a lot of publishers want all of the the rights themselves but 
if Carson and I decided one day to do a, you might be from Saskatchewan have coffee mug set, um, we could, you know, um, they wouldn't, they wouldn't stop us from doing it. Uh, from previous bad experiences that like maybe you did yeah. a whole bunch of art and all of a sudden it was like, I own none of this. To read, um, this, like read the contracts. I always tell people that too, like, a lot of people ask me questions about contracts and I just say, you know, take it to a lawyer and get them to read it over because there's always terms in contracts that are not designed for you to understand them. They're designed for somebody who's gone to law school to understand it. And, and I've, I've done some work with some people where the contract is just goofy. You know, they want you to produce three comic books worth of work within 12 months or they won't pay you or things like that. And it, and that sounds like oh I can do three comic books worth of month you know of work in a month or, or in three months or whatever, but the caveat is is that they're providing you with the scripts. So if the writer doesn't produce three comic books worth of art within that time period, you're not going to produce those three comic books, and they're going to not pay you, and, and they can get away with it because they it says it in their contract. And so I have refused to work with some people because of that. You know, like if the contract sets off any red flags when you're reading it walk away <laughs> because there's a reason it's setting off red flags your brain is telling you hey this seems odd um you know uh and, and it's not that there everybody out there is trying to rip you off it's just there's a difference between a real publisher a, like somebody who's publishing a book working with you versus somebody who wants to get you to produce work for them for free so that they can print it and then publish it and make money off of it and not pay you. And there's a lot of fly-by-night like publishers, in air quotes, um, on the internet. Um, and I get approached by a lot of them because I do, like, word of mouth is super huge, even in this day and age. And I'm kind of known to be the, like, the, the reliable guy, the guy that'll get the job done and not miss your deadlines kind of a guy and so I get emails from people all the time wanting me to do stuff with them and I always take a minute to just go and check out what they've done and then I google them do a quick google search you know see what people are saying about them see if they popped up on any news feeds see if they've see what their track record's like um, and you'll come across people very quickly it, people are too vocal these days for it to be a, a mystery that a publisher isn't paying their artists. Uh, you go look at the quick Reddit posts that are going to be online because they'll all show up, and you know you'll go, oh, such and such comics, do they pay? <laughs> and you'll find it online. Um, I mean, what we did before Google, I don't know, but it's uh, it's amazing um, the amount of people out there that will try to get that free work out of you if they can. You know? I've read that there's some that will pretty much say we want it for free. And what you're getting out of this is, hey, yeah, the notoriety of it is what's paying you. Sure. Pay on the back end and exposure. Those are just ways to say you're going to be a slave. <laughs> you're not going to get paid ever. You'll never get that pay when they make profit on the book. Publishing is not a profitable business unless you are a big name publisher who's putting out like... Even Marvel and DC aren't making money on their comics these days. Like Disney doesn't care if the Marvel comics make money. The, the comic books are like a business card right now. They're just the thing that helps push the characters that they're going to make a movie about or a TV show about and sell a bunch of merchandise about and have a guy showing up in costume at Disneyland. 
you know like that's that's what the comic books have become now for those guys um, like Warner Brothers they don't make money on DC Comics and DC Comics sells tens of thousands of you know copies a month um, there's no way some little independent comic book company is going to be burning down the house making a, a massive profit off of uh, you know five issue black and white horror anthology comic book that they don't have any distribution to sell but it'll be on Amazon and Comicology like there's just so much white noise out there that you have to be you have to look at it realistically if you don't have an audience looking for you then nobody's going to buy the book yeah so and then how much of that audience do you have to build yourself like you know I mean that's that's sort of where they're where they're going to make their money um did you find once you had the tag best-selling author next to your name, did that open a bunch of doors? Uh, I kind of fell into a weird niche. Like I do a lot of color work and a lot of inking, and um, I, I started doing stuff as probably as soon as I did the small press idol competition. Um, I ran. I did a piece of work for another artist um, who worked for Marvel and uh back in the 70s and he's still kicking around still doing stuff at like shows and and he he asked he paid me to do basically a, a couple of convention posters for him which is you know it's a it's more of a graphic arts job than anything else i mean really you're not doing coloring for a comic book at that point and i had it turned around within a day or two and he was just so impressed that i because of the, the, the graphic arts background that I have, that he didn't have to tell me how to set it up to be print ready. And then I sent it to him in the proper formats and it was done right and it was done like really fast. And uh, so he passed my name along to um, the guy that used to run Charlton Comics. And he was doing a kid's, a kid's book and he needed a color artist for a kid's book. So I ended up coloring a kid's book for the guy that used to run Charlton Comics, you know, like word of mouth. And and then that guy passes you along to somebody else who, um, you know, somebody needs somebody to fill in a quick role. And so I ended up doing uh, flats for Big Dog Inc. because of word of mouth, you know, (laughs) they were like, we need a flatter. Our flatters dropped out. Do you know anybody? Hey, this guy might be able to do it. And then I got an email out of the blue, and they're like, what do you charge? And so I, I actually emailed a friend of mine who colors for Image, and I said, hey, man, I've just got asked to do some flatting. I said, if you were going to be doing flatting, what would you charge? Because this is totally not in my wheelhouse. And he, he said, well, usually a flatter charges between this and this. And I said, all right, man, I'm going to charge. Okay, thanks a lot. And I went back to them, and they were like, yeah, no problem. Done deal. You know, and so I had money in my PayPal account from them before I'd even sent in like the first file. So I was like, okay, I like this. This is great, and um, it was a great overall experience. It was a real quick job. You know, I think it was I did it over like four days, um, but it was just flatting. It was really you know easy, quick, done deal. Sent them in print ready pages to go off to the guy who's gonna embellish it, and make it all beautiful, and um, after I did the big job, ink, uh, the big uh, sorry big dog ink job. I ended up doing a, a thing for a Xenoscape, like within a two-week period. Like, and it was another one of those ones where, oh, so and so says you're really good, and I'm like, oh, okay. But then at first I'm like, 
I don't want to be a colorist. <laughs> I'm cursing myself here. And then from there, I ended up inking. Um, I got to ink a piece of Joe Sinnott art. And for those who don't know, Joe Sinnott is the guy that used to ink Jack Kirby. So holding a piece of artwork in your hands that the guy that used to ink Kirby drew was pretty surreal. <laughs> You know, like having a tape to my table and going, oh, I gotta put ink on this. I gotta ruin this picture. I hope I don't fuck this up because I'm gonna hand this in to these guys that have been in the industry for you know a million years, and then seeing that that piece in print in the same book as guys like Terry Austin and Bob Almond and you know all these other like Marvel and DC like stables. It's just it's very surreal. But I mean that all came through because of Facebook and like word of mouth stuff. It's just. Uh, uh, interesting stuff yeah and that's yeah. like when we were talking earlier before we start recording here um about calgary and doing these conventions now you're yeah. you're rubbing elbows with some pretty big name yeah artists now yeah. and now you've become friends with a lot of them and it just seemed like what yeah. point did it kind of like sink in that you're part of that like this year yeah, I still feel like, uh, like I think Carson and I, we had a laugh about this. We were at the Word on the Street Festival. I think it was our our second time appearing at that festival. And so we're sitting at a table. There's myself, there's Carson. Um, there's a guy that wrote The Life of Pi, um, a couple of poets, and we were there with Wes Funk. And uh, um, I'm going to forget his name now. Shoot. He writes a ton of YA novels. He's from Saskatoon. Uh, he's a wonderful guy. And we're sitting at this table, and I'm kind of looking at him like, how the hell did we get here? Like, <laughs> like, did they fall asleep at the wheel? Like, somebody let us in. Do they know that we're car- Like, do they know what we do? Like, you write Dennis the Menace. I draw cartoons. How the hell did we end up at this table with, like, poet laureates and, like, you know, Eve Martell and all this other stuff going on? And then, again, this year, uh, I was sitting in Saskatoon at the, the Fan Expo in the green room, and I'm at the same table as like Owen Jenny and Curtis Weeb and you know there's Carl Kiesel and Tom Grummet and uh, Rossi Gifford and like we all know each other and it's so surreal to be like we're just hanging out talking shop and we're all just chilling and we're talking about getting together after and how are the wife how are the kids like and and my uh, my first thought was like you know, like people would be losing their shit right now if they could see the people assembled at this table. Like, it's just the amazing amount of talent sitting around this table right now is just insane. Like, you got the guy that drew the death of Superman, the guy that inked the death of Superman. You've got rat queens right here. You've got like all these amazing, talented people, and they're all super down to earth, super nice, super friendly. Um, I I remember. Uh, um, I think it was at the Regina Fan Expo, Tom Grummet's wife came up and bought a copy of Color Saskatchewan uh, um, and the you make from Saskatchewan if books for, for presents for people. And I was like, wait a minute, you're, why, what? <laughs> you're buying my book? Why are you buying my book? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, she's like, well, I'm kind of just giving you back the money you just gave Tom for those pages you just bought off. <laughs> but those pages of Superman were hundreds of dollars, but. <laughs> they were. And well, he always cuts me some pretty sweet deals, but he's, he's a, he's a, he's an awesome guy. Uh, I've been a, a fan of Tom Grummet's since I was a kid. Um, I remember the very first time I met him it was after the death of Superman. And uh, he did an autograph session of that book. And I, I, 
I think I put that book in, in a frame and had it hanging on my wall for like years. So I was just like amazed that I'd actually met him and he was just so cool. And, you know, I didn't want to touch the book after because it had been, it had been touched by Tom Grummet. I was afraid to touch it. <laughs> so, so it's been interesting. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Cause like when I finally went to one of those big things, yeah. I loved how accessible and just yeah. easygoing that entire artist row was. Yeah. And like I have the stuff up around me too. And it's yeah. just, it's really weird to like sit down and talk with the guy who actually like did the thing. Yeah. 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 Uh, anybody who goes to any of these conventions, like I know most people nowadays are going to see like the, the TV and movie guys, but you, do yourself a favor and just spend like an hour or two just wandering the artist's alley area or even just go and see the pro guests and go talk to them because they're, they're amazing people. I mean, I've, I've had conversations with uh, artists I've admired for decades um, and I, you know, you, you're a little afraid to approach them at first because you're like, you kind of, I always kind of feel like I'm the imposter in the room because like, I know I've got some credits to my name, blah blah blah. But you, I always still feel like I'm, I'm just a cartoonist. Like that's how I always call myself. I'm just a cartoonist. I'm not a comic book artist. I'm just a cartoonist. And and people give me a hard time with that. But I mean, that's that's how I see myself. I see myself as a cartoonist, like uh, primarily. And uh, so you get talking to these guys. Like like I talked to Jeff Darrow in Calgary four or five years ago and he was probably the most approachable guy I've ever met and he sat there and talked to my 13 year old son for like an hour and drew him a sketch for nothing just drew a sketch for him because he was just he thought he was such an interesting kid and Logan was asking him questions about cartoons like not even like comic book stuff he found out that that uh, Mr. Darrow had worked in animation he was doing um, you know like the background art and stuff and so he told Logan this story about hiding names of serial killers in this one street scene that to see if they could sneak it past all of the the uh, um, the censors. And he says there's a scene in this Hanna-Barbera cartoon where if you're really paying attention, you'll see a truck driving by and it has like Dahmer's meats on it and the butcher shop window is like Bundy's butchers and like it's all this like serial killer shit hidden in this kid's cartoon. And I thought, you know, when else would he ever get that experience? Like, he, he still talks about that, and he's 19. Like, he still goes, remember when we met that guy? He was really cool, and, you know, and he's got this art hung up in his, his you know, his bedroom that, you know, this this awesome artist just drew for him for no reason. And he, you know, he still talks about guys like, like Nat Jones, who's a friend of mine from Edmonton. Like, you know, Nat's this giant, burly dude, but he's awesome. Absolutely a, a joy to talk to and hang out with. And uh, Fernando Ruiz and, you know, and uh, uh, the Archie guys, like, they're... Dan Parent. I mean, they're all wonderful, super approachable people. Um, my buddy Mike Ruth from Toronto, like another super funny, super approachable dude. Like you just have to get out there and talk to them. And, and I and I love. Like I have this this sickness now where I buy art every time I go to these shows, and so I sort of budget myself like a dollar amount when I go because if I don't, I'll go crazy and buy everything. And um, I always have to. I try to pick a different artist every time I go now because it's like I have quite a bit of art now from a lot of different people and now I'm, I'm starting to the, get to the point where I'm, I'm like I need a, a piece from this person now and so I'm looking for specific artists nowadays which is which is kind of fun I think it's it's a new side to collecting you know um, it's it's really neat to be able to see um, for me to see the the nuts and bolts of the assembly of the art before it's been touched and transformed and put into a comic book to, to see the raw ink on paper is just 
to me that's amazing I love to see um, like the drawing on the paper the the pencil lines the erasing lines where they've they've corrected mistakes where they've uh, you know like uh, the archie stuff I've got is all lettered right on the board so I've got an actual cartoon strip running down my stairwell that you can read as you're going down the stairs because it's, it's lettering on the board like you don't see that anymore so it's pretty amazing um, but to me it's all part of that experience I mean it's just it's an, an enjoyment and I'm loving like my daughter is eight and she's starting to get really interested in what I'm doing it's gotta be weird for her <laughs> you know um, like people come up to me and ask for my autograph when we go to shows and she kind of looks like why do you want my dad's autograph it's just my dad right and and I don't ex I haven't really explained it to her but she knows that I've got like a toy and books and I've been on TV a million times and like she you know um, but she keeps me super grounded you know every time I, she sees oh you're on TV again you know it's like this is why are you on TV again dad <laughs> like what's going on so I don't know it's, it's fun it, it adds a, a neat uh, little dimension to to the whole thing for me so it's pretty cool um, are there any artists that you've come across that are kind of the opposite of that though like yeah yeah I mean you gotta keep in mind not everybody's gonna dig what you do or, or dig like not everybody is an extrovert right not everybody enjoys hanging out with people I mean I don't know why you table at a show if you don't want to hang out with people because that's the whole point of tabling at a show is to hang out with the people to me anyway um, but I, there there was one artist I don't want to name names or even say where she's from because and I'm not like that um, but my son there was we were in Calgary and we were set up in Hall H it was the first year that they had split the halls and we were we were table buddies with a, a family that were from Halifax and they were amazing they were wonderful people we just enjoyed I become you know internet buddies with them like they're just wonderful wonderful people um, you know husband and wife team and two tables over from them there was an artist from the states and everybody was having a very rough weekend like sales were not amazing because they had taken us and put us into another separate building and the only thing that was going on in that building aside from us were these celebrity autographs and they were going on on the main floor so not a lot of people were coming upstairs for some reason I have a crowd of people that no one that like me in Calgary and they show up looking for me which I totally am super appreciative for and I love them for it it's the same in Saskatoon I've got a huge following in Saskatoon I've got people that come by just specifically looking for me I love them they're wonderful they're your people they're your fans you gotta love them and so I had a really good day of sales because I had people coming to my table all the time but I've been building an audience for like five years so people or seven years now I guess so people who know they see your name on that list they're, they're gonna go oh well, we gotta stop by this guy's table because I bought that book last year and he probably has a new book out this year and and all that stuff where they, they walk by and they see the Saskatchewan book and it's amazing how many people in Calgary are from Saskatchewan because they all stop off to buy the book <laughs> like it's amazing to me how many books they sell in Calgary but that's a whole other story um, so we were having a really hot day and, and, and I had just released the toy that year and it was flying off the table and my son like I had noticed she was just 
sort of staring a hole through me the whole day. And I just kind of was like ignoring it. You know, I thought, I don't know what I did to offend her, but whatever. I'm just going to do my thing. Um, not worry about her. I'm having fun. My table buddies are great. The guy across from us is great. We're all having a laugh. We're all chatting. We're all getting to know each other. We're all having a good time. Had lots of kids at my table. I was making people laugh. You know, I mean, I, I always viewed it as like my job to sort of entertain. They're here to have some fun and be entertained and, you know, have a laugh and buy a thing and go out, you know, and enjoy their day. And she was just staring at me like to the point where my son looked over and he was like, why is that lady staring at you? And I said, I don't know. You know, like I really had no idea what was going on with her. And she had complained about my table um, to the organizers. And the organizers came by and they were like, I don't know why she's complaining about your table. Your table's fine. And I said, who's, what? Like somebody's complaining about my table? And he's like, yeah, she was complaining about your table. So she tried to get me kicked out of the convention for some reason. But I hadn't broken any rules. Like I was just moving merchandise. <laughs> like I was just selling my toy. Like it's not a big deal. And so I don't know if she thought that I was selling like a pirated item or something because I mean, how many independent people have their own toy? Like it, I mean, that was a whole other thing, but I mean, I, I kind of, I was trying to figure it out and, I, and I, you know what? I just, at the end of the day, I was like, you know what? She's just not my fan, whatever. That's fine. Um, I just kept on selling stuff and having a good time and, and enjoyed the rest of the weekend. And I told my son not to worry about it, you know, cause he was getting all, he was offended cause you know, he's like, I want to defend my dad. You know, you're you're being evil to my dad, and I don't like that. And he's such a, he's he's a kid who wears his heart on his sleeve. And I'm, I'm always like, you know what? You can't let people get to you. You just gotta move on, and don't worry about it. You know, like let's just go and have fun and enjoy our day, and you know, eat ramen noodles and and sell toys and have fun. And uh, so we did. We just had a had a good rest of the weekend. We had a good time. Made good friends. One not so good friend, but you know, whatever. <laughs> it's all good. I ran into her actually at another show. Uh, I think it was in Winnipeg, uh, C4Con that same year. And she was tabled way on the other side for me, but she gave me like the super cold shoulder on the way. We passed each other on the way in and out of the show. And I was like, I didn't recognize her the first time I saw her. And then afterwards I'm like, Oh, it's her. <laughs> you know? It's like, she still doesn't like me. And I'm like, whatever. I, I don't care. I'm having a good time. But generally it's, it seems like a really, generally it's very positive. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's because. Anybody who's been doing this for any length of time, the, the ego is at the door. Like, they, I, I think the the first impression or the first fear I had was I was going to show up at these events and people are going to see you as their competition. But because I'm in such a weird niche, um, I think they see less. Um, Less of like they're not competing directly against me. You're not a threat to I'm their threat. business. Yeah, yet. I'm not drawing Superman. I'm not drawing Spider Man. I'm doing my own thing. Um, I am doing stuff aimed at kids. Um, and a lot of I've had a lot of pros come to me and say like, "You're really good with the kids," you know. And it's like you know, I started doing this because when my son wanted to read comic books, I couldn't buy him anything off the shelf, and it bothered me that there were like really nothing was marketed towards the kids and then they came up with the johnny dc line like i think a year or two afterwards and by then he was like well whatever he was into jonah hex and he was old enough to read it so i started buying old i was actually buying old 60s comics for the longest time because they, they were safe and, and he was enjoying them and made him happy he wanted to get a um he wanted to get into iron man and the first thing he picked up was this um Iron Man comic and there was a scene in there where Hulk had ripped Iron Man's helmet off 
and he thought that Hulk had ripped Iron Man's head off. And so he immediately just put it down and walked away from the shelf. And I was like, what's wrong? And he's like, I think the Hulk killed Iron Man. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Marvel wouldn't just kill off a character that quickly. It'd be a big event. <laughs> you know, so I looked at the book and I realized what he was talking about. And I was like, oh, I see what you're saying. A little intense. Let's, let's find you something else that's not so intense. And so when he, when he was um, nine, I started doing Jason in New York City. And I ran all my character designs past him. And so all of my character designs have Logan approved written on the bottom. Because if, if he didn't, if he thought it was too intense, he would be like, no, no. And I would just, oh, okay, I'll redesign him. You know, I'll make the character look you know, more kid-friendly. And, and uh, the one nice thing about having a kid in the house to run stuff past is kids don't have a filter. They don't care if they hurt your feelings. Um, you know, if they think your hair looks stupid and you're fat, they're going to tell you your hair looks stupid and you're fat. And so you don't get that sugar coating. Like if you show something to a loved one, they don't want to hurt your feelings and go, oh, that's a great drawing. Uh, Logan would say, oh, I don't really understand what's going on in that one, Dad. And I'd go, oh, I better go back and redo that then. <laughs> so, you know, you have that, that lack of filter. And so I found he reinvigorated a love of drawing for me that, um, I kind of lost because I got busy being a dad and working and I stopped drawing comic books for a while and, and uh, he kind of got that passion going for me again when he was, you know, just getting into stuff. It was like I wanted to make him excited and happy and and so I kind of got back into drawing and doing all this stuff. Um, so yeah, it's probably his fault that I'm doing this now. <laughs> Do you find that there's a lack of comics for younger kids? I find there's this frustrating perception out there that kids don't read comic books and yet my little pony sells a million copies a month right like and i understand there's an audience of my little pony fans that aren't kids but i i know that my daughter buys that book well i buy it for her on a monthly basis and i know that there are lots and lots of kids that read things like that they see a cartoon on tv they want to read the book um, when they see it on the shelves, uh, Scholastics. If you look at their 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 bookstore stuff that they do, or the book you know fairs that they do in schools, it, there's a lot of comic books in there, but they're all very kid friendly, and, and and you don't see a lot of Marvel and DC stuff in there until this year. Yeah, uh, when, I feel like Teen Titans yeah. has kind of been their forced yeah Teen kids Titans, property. Yeah, and they they over kitted it for a while like they were doing this really super goofy looking stuff like it turned my daughter my daughter I was buying her the Teen Titans comic book and then they went super manga goofy on it like almost Power Teen Puff Titans Girls. go yeah yeah and she was like I don't want to read this and I thought okay because you really enjoyed the Teen Titans for a long time and now you're saying nope seeing it had the opposite effect for Xander yeah just the zaniness of it but like I really can't think of another Marvel yeah. or DC. Like, they had the Hero Academy for a while there, I think, for Marvel. They and, did. And my, or my Superhero Squad. Like or... Yeah. Yeah, I tried to get her to read a few of them, and she was, wasn't into it. It wasn't her thing. She really got into, um, uh, what was that book called? Adventure Time. But, I mean, that's based off of a kid's show. Yeah. And she loved the art, but she loved, like, there were unicorns and horses, and she's a big horse fanatic, so that was her thing. But she also liked, um, I got her to read Bone. Um, 
and I think I still think Bone is like the high watermark for like a kid's comic book. I mean, it's so amazingly well crafted, and what a great story. I mean, Jeff Smith has just put together just the perfect comic book story. I mean, a guy who you know, and leave it to an animator to come out with the perfect comic book, right? Like, uh, it's just so timeless. I mean, that book will probably live on for decades. Um, you know, it's just one of those things. It, it, my son read it. I read it. My daughters read it. Like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure the last Scholastic thing that came through too had like a Bone title in it. Too. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, and they they uh, the whole Bone collection is in the Scholastic's line. I mean, not very many independently produced comic books can say that they have Scholastic's carrying them in into schools for mm -hmm. you know for for that matter. Um, I mean, Disney carried them for a little while too, and then I think there's a contract thing, right, where. He was excited, and then, wait a minute, what do you mean you own all my things? No, I'm out. <laughs> um, so, I, I, yeah, and I, and I applaud him for that, and walking away from the truck of money, you know, to keep his integrity and his character intact. So that's, that's good for him. And the one that, um, like, just looking for Xander, because he's not into, like, the kid-kid comic yeah. stuff now, and um, they're great at readers, and they introduced me to um, the series by Doug Tenable. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And they're like, here, try this. And yeah. um, it was amazing. And he has a whole bunch of different ones like Cardboard and Metropolis and all those yeah. ones. And um, I didn't realize till a little bit later that he was the Earthworm Jim guy. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, like it's a very short shelf now, it seems, for the 8 to 12 transition, transition age. Yeah, it's a, it's, and it's a shame because it's such a cool age. That's when I got into comics. You know, if they If they would just do... Um, a line of Marvel comics the way that they had them in the 80s where they weren't super kiddy but they weren't super serious they would have a smash because it'd be so much more accessible um, like if, like for me the, the thing I really enjoyed about comics when I got into reading them was like Spider-Man Peter Parker was somebody I could easily relate to the guy was about my age he had money trouble you know, and I was in a single parent household, so I ding, I, I can I can get with that. He had trouble with school. He had trouble with girls. He had trouble with work. Um, I mean, he wasn't a perfect person. He wasn't like Superman, where he was totally infallible and you couldn't hurt the guy. And 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 he was sometimes finding himself being thrown against characters that were way out of his power range. Like there's there's that issue where he fights Firestorm, who's like a herald of Galactus. And he's going around the city trying to find somebody else to fight this guy. Because he's like, what am I thinking? This dude's going to crush me. And the Fantastic Four isn't home. And he goes by the Avengers Mansion and they aren't home. And he's like, what's a guy got to do to get some help here? And he ends up beating the guy. <laughs> it's you super know? funny because I actually have that comic. Oh, yeah, I love and, that stuff. Um, I got it. Remember when we were young, they would have like in the gas stations, they'd yeah. have those bags and they'd put... One good comic is the visible one, yeah. and then hide some other crap. Which the crap that we couldn't yeah, get shelves. Yeah, yeah. I got that yeah. Spider Man out of one of those three packs. It's kind yeah. of funny. Oh, well, I was I was buying everything Spider Man at the time, so I just loved it. I was like, this is why I love Spider Man. And there's nothing like that now. Now it's just they've gotten into this mindset, and I think this is partly because of you know, and I, I don't want to throw all the Marvel writers under the bus because Ed. You know, Ed Bryson's amazing. He does a great job. But um, there are other writers that I also enjoy. But it seems like the mindset right now is is geared towards 
um, super events where they have to involve every single book in the bloody universe or complete retcon over and over and over again or they get into a theme like this gender bending character stuff or having a red blue purple green gray hulk guy like and that just cheapens like your ability to tell the story if, if you've you look like you've run out of ideas then there's no interesting twist here for me to get behind it's just it's hard to, to enjoy it i liked i tried um i tried to go back to reading spider-man a few years ago when uh dan slot was writing uh superior spider-man and they had that twist where they had doc ock kill spider-man and then body swap with him i thought that's just so cool what a great twist and then they started doing the thing where Peter Parker was appearing in his head and he was trying to be Spider-Man as Doc Ock and it was like, it just felt so very forced and it's clunky and they should have taken it in such a different direction than they did and I just, it ended up losing me before they resolved the story because I was just like, and maybe this is because I write stuff too that I'm like, uh, I'm looking for something, some kind of a twist, something unique, something I wouldn't have thought of, you know? And um, and it just seemed like it was just so clunky. And it was like, okay, Doc Ock is Spider-Man. Now we're going to throw him against his entire uh, cadre of villains. You know, this month is the Hobgoblin. Next month is the Rhino. Then we're going to do the Vulture. And, then, and it's like, well, okay, that's kind of lame. Like, how about have Doc Ock doing something really amazing as Spider-Man? So villainous and crazy that nobody would expect it. Maybe he takes down the entire Avengers team. He's a superhero after all. And... He's got a pass to get into the Avengers Mansion. <laughs> it's Doc Ock. You can't tell me he's suddenly a good guy. Like, but they they told me they tried to make him into the hero, and it just it didn't work. It's not it's not Doc Ock. He's not yeah. a good guy. I did like how yeah, like how you said he had Peter Parker kind of looming over his shoulder, yeah, and it's all like all the time. Don't do that. And it's just yeah, it yeah. would have been neat to see because I think through his history he's probably been holding back because he's yeah. cares, so he's not trying to like punch Rhino in the head as hard as yeah. he can he's trying to detain it so I also thought like Doc Ock might kind of show some of the other things that he's capable of yeah he but wouldn't just... be restrained yeah. you know, and then the whole the whole thing with him trying to prove that he's a superior mind over everybody else which is like this is lame you know you got the villain he's won he's in Spider-Man's incredible body and the best he can do is come up with a better PhD I mean <laughs> come on you know I thought that's just wasted potential he should have gone so much more I mean with all of his brain power he should have became the ultimate spider assassin of the Avengers or something like he should have done something unexpected you know yeah yeah but I mean it's hard to hard to do that and keep your your hero selling books I guess every month but then don't have Doc Ock win <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. You know. um, do you have any advice for anyone that wants to get into this field? Yeah, get because in. before chatting, like you've become a success here, and Joel, who works at the comic store, has become quite oh, a success too. Oh, he's phenomenal. Too. Yeah, Joel Hustack is amazing. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. Um, my original idea was to try and track both of you down, but he's busy, busy, and I appreciate you making the he time. He is. Yeah, he's a busy um, dude. But was there a shadow from McFarlane? over kind of Canadian artists or no I don't think so there's a lot of Canadians working in comics like more than people know um, a lot more than people know I mean really um, 
I mean, there's there have been so many, um, so many creators even right now. I mean, if you look at some of the image titles that are out there, I mean, how many of them come from Calgary or or Saskatchewan or Vancouver? It's, it's crazy. Like, I mean, you got Owen Jenny who is he's from Regina. He's he's living in Vancouver right now, but Owen started off doing you know comics out of his basement. We were drawing comic books in the back of the old Tramps comic store back in high school together. Like. And then he, you know, just kept plugging away at it. He did some, you know, stuff for Archaea Publishing out in Vancouver. And then he ended up working on Evangeline for Image. And then he started coloring with uh, um, books for Curtis Weep and Riley Rosmo. He did um, Debris and a bunch of other stuff. And uh, now he's coloring Manifest Destiny for, you know, Robert Kirkman's uh, books. And he's coloring and drawing uh, rat queens with uh, Curtis Weeb. So I mean, guys, guys, phenomenal. He does great work, and he's just—he's honestly a super, super approachable, super nice guy, down to earth. Uh, love the dude. I think he's wonderful. And uh, you know, he's from Regina. Curtis Weeb. He's from—he's from Saskatoon. He used to drive bus up in Saskatoon. He's a writer. He's making it go. You know. Nice. Uh, he's got some pretty, pretty exciting stuff coming up. I can't say anything about it because can't talk about it a couple artists that work for heavy metal magazine that are from uh from canada uh one guy i think he's from montreal the other guy's from uh vancouver the colorist and uh you know then there's also uh i mean riley rosmo guy's drawing batman right now he's from calgary he's fantastic what a nice dude i own one of his uh, first dc pages <laughs> oh really <laughs> oh yes <laughs> yeah page of bizarro art from uh from a superman story he did one of his first dc pieces so um uh, he's he's awesome. I've watched him come up through. You know, like he started off. Uh, he he was. I think he still is teaching actually at the uh, art school in Alberta. But he's uh, he's one of those guys that started off in the Indies. I mean, he started working. He did the Green Wake with Curtis Weeb, and he did Cowboy Ninja Viking, which I think is about to become a movie. Um, I think before that, and he's done a bunch of other stuff, like just like small independent stuff, you know. Um, but plugging away. Um, you know, and, and building that body of work. I think that's the important thing people have to keep in mind. Like, you know, you're building a body of work every time you do a new piece or a new project. Like, you're gonna you're building a portfolio. Like, I don't carry a portfolio around with me anymore because I don't need to. I've got, you know, the portfolio is on store shelves. It's it's all over the place. You know, it's on my table. <laughs> Here's my portfolio. Here's the things I did. You know, this year. You know, um, and and I think that's. Uh, um, kind of the nice thing. I mean, that's where I, I think uh, when people are starting out, they, they get a little frustrated because I think they're expecting... Well, there's two things people ha- that people are expecting that I've noticed that that are completely not ever going to happen. One is nobody's going to come to your door and say, hey, I want to give you an opportunity. You have to go and knock on that door first and ask for the opportunity to do stuff. And secondly... Um, Nobody, uh, nobody starts off working for Marvel. <laughs> Not now. Marvel doesn't actively recruit unless you're going to New York Comic Con or San Diego Comic Con. They're only doing portfolio reviews at two places. Most of the people I know who are working for either of those companies have spent years working for other companies. Big Dog Inc., Xenoscape, Valiant Comics. They're doing work for Image. They're doing creator-owned stuff. They're doing web comics. Look at Becky Cloonan. She did photocopied 
folded in half, eight and a half by eleven mini comic books for years. Just slice of life stuff. Working out her art, working out her craft, becoming an awesome writer and artist. Now she does Fable, which is like huge. You know, and she started doing all of that stuff only because she had built a body of work and built a following, proved herself to be reliable. Now she's doing amazing stuff. She's even doing work for Archie. She redesigned Archie for the new the new releases. Um, you know, the Archie TV show. Uh, that all came about because they dug what she that what Archie's been doing. Uh, Archie Comics when they they redid all the characters and you know Riverdale's coming right out of that that revamped version of Archie. So. You know, I mean, it's but that all came about because they're taking chances. I mean, Archie has to stay alive somehow, right? Archie Comics, they they can't keep reprinting the same comic strips they've been reprinting for a hundred years. They have to try new things, and they don't want to, you know, try anything that's stale. I mean, they did the Archie after death thing for you know the zombie fans and the horror comic fans and then they did Archie versus Predator Archie versus Predator I think Why Punisher's not? on that list too somewhere. he is yeah Dan Parent drew both of those <laughs> yeah so you know um, but that's that's the thing like people people have to understand that every single person that you're seeing that's sitting at a table who's got like a bigger company name over their head started off sitting at a kitchen table somewhere eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper making their own little thing happen some people go to college some don't I mean I, going and getting an art degree isn't a guarantee you're going to get work um, you know I, I gave a, a talk in Saskatoon this year and, and the biggest thing that I, I wanted to imprint on people there was that I don't have a degree in cartooning what I have is a sickness I can't be late I can't miss a deadline and so because of that sickness I get work um, it doesn't matter if there's somebody out there that can draw better than you all that matters is you get your your work handed in and then it's of a certain level of quality that's publishable um, that's what they want that's what publishers are looking for they, they, the publisher needs people to produce a book that they can market and they can sell but they need them to be able to produce it on a regular basis, you know? Like, there's a reason that certain artists get to do just covers. Like, Adam Hughes is an amazing artist. He puts together probably some of the best covers DC's ever done. Like, for Superman, Supergirl, Wonder Woman, Catwoman, all of those guys. He doesn't draw a monthly book. Because he's he's crafting amazing images but he's only able to do them so fast and they want him to produce you know the covers to to sell the books and they pay him handsomely to do it, it would he turn down doing a regular comic book probably not but I mean if you can get cover work why not <laughs> no that's awesome advice um, <clears throat> I've wasted well over an hour of your time Oh, it's I all good. totally appreciate you coming out and helping me get into this adventure. No worries. Um, was Color Saskatchewan the newest thing you had? The newest book I've got out right now is Color Saskatchewan. Um, the only other thing that's newer than that would be the cartoons magazine stuff. And that comes out every two months. Um, the newest issue will be out in January. And uh, I will have cartoons in that one. And... Um, 
Carson and I have a couple other projects that are coming, but they'll be out in 2018. So we have the Riddle book, which will be out sometime in 2018. Nice. And we have another really bizarre project. Um, Carson's done a, a book of interviews where he's talked to people that attend horror and comic book and like celebrity, celebrity com- conventions. And I'm doing a bunch of cartoons based off that forum. So nice. I don't know when that one's coming out. It'll be out by uh, Bearhaven Press um, probably in 2018 sometime. So. Right on. I'll make sure I put your info underneath. Yeah, for sure. Um, and once again, I appreciate it. Thanks for coming. Yeah, out. no worries.